On Guido Talks this week, Keir Starmer's big speech lands small, David Frost earns a seat at the cabinet table, and Angela Rayner faces a backlash after making false allegations. All that and more in this week's episode of Guido Talks. Stick about. Hello and welcome to another episode of Guido Talks, the show where we look back over the last week of news on the Guido Fawkes website. My name's Tom Harwood and once again I'm joined by Guido Fawkes founder and editor Paul Staines and reporter Christian Kelgi. Remember, if you are watching this show on YouTube as opposed to listening to it wherever you get your podcasts, you can skip ahead to different stories by using the links in the description. So this week we had a big moment. Parliament was in recess, but that didn't stop Keir Starmer trying to make a splash. What went down, Christian? Well, this was a chronic case, uh, really, of over-promising and and under-delivering. We were hyped, this big speech from Keir Starmer called A New Chapter for Britain, which, by the way, we think is stolen from something Boris said when the negotiation was agreed with Europe. Uh, it came and went, and just, uh, you know, rather than the policy blitz we were promised over the weekend, uh, he came up with two policies, one of which the government has been basically doing since 2012 for nine years now, uh, and the other one is a proposal for uh, bonds to boost investment, which is ripped from the CPS, of course, a, a Thatcherite think tank and proposed by members of the Northern Research Group of Tory MPs. So the whole thing felt really flat. If it had been advertised as just Keir Starmer sort of setting a new direction, uh, a, gen- a general speech, then fine. But this was meant to be a keynote thing, getting the, getting the project back on the rails after a pretty tawdry couple of weeks. Um, and yet it was very thin on the ground and, and delivered in a, a usually uninspiring way. I spoke to Robert Colville, who's the boss around the Centre for Policy Studies, and he was quite amused. He said, if, if Keir's going to carry on like this, you know, ruling out tax rises during recovery and nicking their ideas for recovery bonds, he might have them in the boardroom for lunch to give them a few more ideas. I don't think it went down very well with the left, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting because, of course, this was a speech that was designed to be his new philosophical outlook on life. Uh, Keir Starmer's team has decided that the sort of forensic um, attitude of his leadership had not been working so well. He actually needed to put some philosophy down, sort of some some worldview where he stood. And that was meant to be a belief in government to root out inequality in society. That was meant to be the sort of almost Corbynite uh, values-driven worldview. And yet, if you announce that by, by, by pursuing some CPS policy, um, it, it, it's not necessarily uh, exactly what people on the left flank want to hear. And we certainly saw that with reaction. We saw reaction from a lot of people who were in the sort of Corbyn outrider crowd saying that there wasn't any meat to um, the sound bites, uh, which, is a, which is a criticism that we've heard a lot about Keir Starmer recently. But also we saw sort of middle of the road people like Ben Chu at The Independent saying that actually the policy offering was very, very thin. Um, and, and it's unusual to see these sort of uh, the, the hard left and, and some more sort of centre left commentators actually agreeing that what we saw on Thursday wasn't anything special. In any event, haven't the Tories, with their levelling up agenda and the one Tory, one nation rhetoric, 
uh, really advance onto that ground already. So it's, it's where, where has he got to go uh, ideologically? The, the playing field seems to have moved onto his turf with the Red Wall uh, uh, agenda. I think, I, saw I think one Northern Tory MP during um, the spe- or after the speech had concluded uh, tweeted out that the, the word North or Northern was only included once in the speech. And this was the speech that was designed to sort of set Labour back on track to reclaim all those Northern seats that they'd lost. I mean, the problem, the problem really uh, is that this, if, the, if we got to the next election and Boris hasn't delivered on the levelling up agenda this stuff might start cutting through. But I think the public are going to listen to it and think, well, of course they haven't made any progress on the election promises because they've been fighting a pandemic. So really, this is all a bit too premature for Starmer to be attacking on. Uh, But of course, he has to start doing this because the thing he's been going in hard on over the last year, the competence, well, he's lost that. Now the vaccine rollout's going so well. So really, they've been scrabbling to try and find a new angle to attack on. And it's not gone particularly brilliantly. It's not. I don't, an I don't understand the position. policy anyway, because these recovery bonds, presumably it's your patriotic duty to buy them like the old war bonds were. Well, that means are they going to be... Well, government bonds are yielding 0.1%, which isn't the greatest yield. So are they going to be more expensive, more attractive, so rich old people buy them? Is this a policy that's going to help renters in their bedsits who are overdrawn at the end of the month. It's kind of weird that I don't know who it's pitched at and who it's going to benefit. And is it any more efficient than the government just borrowing guilt to the open market as per normal? It it does seem a bit thin and poorly thought through. One of the things that the independent was saying in response to it is that it does it seems a bit pointless given that it's not hypothecated. That that you would you'd um give out the bonds and, and get in a load of cash, but that would just go to normal um, government spending. It's not as if it would be used for anything specific, and Keir Starmer said as much in his uh, in the question and answers at the end of his speech. So Which did I, sound I really pathetic when he said he said, "Oh, I don't know, <laughs> this and that." It was just, it was just. Uh, did he know in his heart of hearts this has gone very badly? Well, it's interesting seeing some of the Labour spin at the end of this um, speech, sort of um, setting up with some sympathetic commentators saying, well, this was always going to be a very hard speech for Sakir. Everyone knows he's not the world's greatest orator. Um, This wasn't actually meant to be the cut through moment. It was supposed to lay the groundwork. All of these things completely undermining the spin they they were giving out before Mm. the speech, saying this would be um, sort of an agenda setting reset of his leadership. Mm. And we had this, we did have this promise of a policy blitz over the weekend, briefed out to the papers this week it was going to get the project back on track. And yet on Wednesday, not a single new policy had been announced. And by Thursday in this speech, we've only got two very flimsy ones. And yesterday, Angela Rayner re-announced something that the party had already called for back in November. Um, so it really, they've just had to backtrack massively, I think, on this and, and sort of move the goalposts on what we should have been uh, expecting and what would have been a successful week for Starmer. I do get the feeling that on a sunny tax haven aisle somewhere, Tony Blair is just sitting there rocking back and forth in his seat going, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I don't know. I think he's, he's becoming incredibly smug because you had all of these sort of soft left people saying, look, this is so easy. Uh, Corbyn is behind. We should be 40 points ahead by now. Uh, and yet, now that they're in charge, they're not 40 points ahead. They're sort of three, four, five points behind. Um, it's an unenviable job you have being leader of the opposition because, of course, you're attacked from the sort of business community if you're uh, not pro-business enough, but also you're attacked by your enormously influential left flank if you start sounding in any way electable. To be fair, it did take Cameron two and a half, nearly three years to get ahead of the t- to get ahead of um, Blair mm. and uh, uh, Gordon Brown. It's not easy, but I don't think uh, we can see a path where Starmer's going to cut it, and that is a, mm. a recurrent problem. We said this last week. His own sides begin to feel like he's not the one, mm. and that's even with Peter Mandelson coming on board as an advisor. The surprise announcement of this week was Lord Frost getting a seat at the cabinet table. And the seat he's got has a lot of uh, Michael Gove's jobs to go with it. So Michael Gove was in charge of the relationship with the EU post-Brexit. That is now um, on Lord Frost's agenda. And he's also got some of um, the relationships with the EU countries, which rather confuses me because I thought that was a foreign office job. But, you know, maybe they'll revert to the usual situation where Lord Frost will look after British interests and the Foreign Office will look after foreigners' interests. That is not the only thing that happened. There was a sort of post after that, everyone was, what was that all about? What is going on in you know, criminology? What's going on in court? And we took a look at all the different briefing that went on, where you could see allies of go for briefing, and his briefing was basically, everything's fine, this is my plan all along. And Lord Frost people were saying, uh, playing it down, I think, saying it's just about um, getting the Mandarin to listen to me and me being a proper minister will uh, make that possible and technical and administrative and civil service rules, etc. Et but a cabinet office job is quite a big jump and uh, just shows the strength of his relationship and the amount that Boris trusts him, I think. In the background, we had other moves. Um, in Downing Street, we saw Baroness uh, Finn get uh, the job of Deputy Chief of Staff to Dan Rosenfeld. Dan Rosenfeld was brought in as you know, being big big business um, and big ideas and going to sort out, well, basically managing Boris, which is very difficult to do. He sort of pushed aside da- uh, Eddie Lister, who's an old, um, uh, goes back to London military days and was a trustee of Boris's. He's been throwing his weight around a bit but it's not going brilliantly. And I think uh, Baroness Finn, who used to be a bit of gossip for you, an old squeeze of Michael Goes back in the day, um, is now in there to help with that. Uh, Henry Newman, uh, who is a long-time Gove bag carrier, special advisor, is also going to Downing Street. So it's hard to read any of this. If we take it at face value, it's just a strengthening of the team. If we are suspicious and we are suspicious-minded around here at Guido, it might be something Gove's done that has upset Boris. I don't know yet. Does anyone else? Well, it wasn't too long ago that we were expecting Lord Frost to become the National Security Advisor. And so from that position to uh, just a couple of months later being in the Cabinet, this clearly wasn't uh, the plan all along. Things have clearly changed. And it does make you wonder what the internal dynamics within Number 10 are to sort of um, to push this move forward. Well, Boris clearly wants to keep 
Frost tight and close to him. He's, there's, a, there's a strong, I get the strong impression that Boris trusts him, that he delivered what he wanted on Brexit. Without Frost, it wouldn't have happened. So that, that with that, you can see why uh, Boris wouldn't want to lose him. I saw some coverage in some of the papers that uh, Frost was threatened to resign, you know, was unhappy with Cummings and Kane going. I don't believe that's correct. The other interesting move that we saw within Number 10 in recent weeks was the union unit, where Luke Graham, the former MP uh, who had been running it, was moved off up to Scotland to help with the Scottish Tories, and Oliver Lewis, who was David Frost's number two in the Brexit negotiating unit, is now running the union unit, which is of course going to be an incredibly influential part of Number 10, as it looks likely the SNP will win that Holyrood election in just a few months' time. So the David Frost nexus within Number 10 is really um, growing in power. It feels to me that the mood music for a, a reshuffle has got much louder over the last week with all the various machinations that have been going on. I think a lot of the moves, a lot of the briefings speak of a growing uh, friction between certain camps, discontent that Boris uh, and others within his team will want to try and deal with in a sort of formal big swoop moment rather than all these small backroom team reshuffles. Uh, and I think uh, for the first time, really, during the pandemic, uh, it speaks to me that there is now an, an appropriate need for a, a decent side reshuffle. Well, I think we well, know we were, hearing that we were going to have a reshuffle for a long, long time. First, there was going to be one in the summer. Then there was going to be one in February. And now that's obviously been pushed later and later. So this has been really building up since the beginning of the pandemic. Did you notice that um, Lord Frost's appointment is effective March the 1st? So given we've had um, Kwasi Kwarteng come in, now we've got uh, uh, Lord Frost. That's two extra people at the table because Alak Sharma didn't lose his cabinet seat at the table, even though he's not a cabinet minister. It's quite confusing and caused a little <laughs> bit of a row at the bookies, I can tell you, but that is not. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so it seems to me there's two, they're too heavy in, um, in the cabinets. Either you're going to have a bigger cabinet or two people have got to go. And, and of course, could it happen, could it happen on March 3rd? That seems very close to the budget to be March 3rd, unless you want a big bang change all in, in those couple of days. I suppose the budget coming would sort of push any negative headlines that the reshuffle creates out of the water if they want to go big and go hard and go quick. But I would say that Boris Johnson became Prime Minister on the back of briefing to newspapers saying he would slim the cabinet down, that he would cut up to six government departments and, and have fewer people sitting around that cabinet table. Liz Truss, who, wanted, who was one of his early backers to become Prime Minister, suggested that we could have an American-style cabinet with only a dozen or, or maybe even fewer people at the cabinet table. Um, it doesn't look like that, that, that the realities of government are letting that happen, though. Things that never happen but are always promised in opposition. Bonfire regulations, smaller cabinet, fewer spads. These things never happen. <laughs> Once you get there, you need all the levers you can, you can, you can use. <laughs> One of the more red stories we ran this week was the ongoing feud between the free market think tank, the in Institute for Economic Affairs, and the Labour Party, with us running an exclusive letter that the IEA has written to Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, setting out that her letter to Matt Hancock last week that we discussed on this podcast um, has actually, actually contained some 
pretty false allegations. The letter that Angela Rayner put out alleged that the IEA had given money to Matt Hancock and while he was health secretary. Now, neither of these things are true. Uh, Neil Record is the chair of the IEA and he has donated to Matt Hancock back when he was a backbench MP. But since he's been health secretary, he hasn't donated at all. And the IEA has been nothing to do with those uh, donations. So the idea that this was all some sort of big conspiracy is pretty sloppy writing from Angela Rayner and might get her into some hot water. The IEA's letter has demanded she apologise, but as far as we know, she has not done that yet. This might be one that could uh, roll onwards. I'm amazed that the whole Tufton Street conspiracy stuff is now mainstream Labour Party thinking. Incidentally, the Institute of Economic Affairs isn't on Tufton Street. So, <laughs> as conspiracies go, it's a very misnamed one, you know. It's, I mean, it's just a very quick Google, isn't it? It's on 2 Lord North Street, um, which is granted round the corner from Tufton Street. But if anything, the, the, the whole think tank conspiracy should be called the Marquis of Granby conspiracy, because that's the pub that all the think tank people go and drink in after work. It's not, it's not a conspiracy nexus that they're all secretly working each other. These people who happen to have similar views and work in a similar area go to the same pub and are friends. I don't know what's so earth-shattering around that. God, I hate that pub, but I'd love to be there right now. <laughs> oh, I miss it so much. <laughs> just, just. Uh, anyway. Talking of Labour messing up, we had uh, Claudia Webb, uh, who of course is independent, but uh, very much still Labour deep down, uh, got in trouble this week after failing to declare a heck of a lot of extra additional income from her councillor job. Now, of course, despite being... Uh, Keith Baz's replacement up in Leicester. Uh, she's still a councillor on Islington Council and gets about £880 a month, all, almost all of which she uh, failed to declare. There were eight separate payments, uh, which is very obvious. I mean, you just declare uh, any extra income in your register of interests. The typically bizarre thing uh, that Claudia Webb did was, by way of an explanation, decided to go through an abridged history of the pandemic uh, to excuse herself. So she came in without, with all the dates and was claiming that she was only getting four hours sleep a night. Um, I personally sleep quite well if I was getting £880 extra a, a month. Uh, but she was admonished by the Standards Committee and uh, was sort of told to sort it out. Now, she's a very interesting case up in Leicester West because, of course, readers might remember uh, a few weeks ago we ran a story about Keith Vaz, um, who, of course, she replaced as that Leicester MP, has been out and delivering leaflets um, about saving the local hospital. He's even allegedly been doing some casework for former constituents and has made himself a visual presence in the constituency campaigning out and about. Now... If one were to be cynical, you might think that this is the sort of behaviour of someone who would really quite like to be the MP for Leicester West again. And Claudia Webb, of course, is no longer a member of the Labour Party. She's suspended um, for a, an upcoming trial. So it's not outside of the realms of possibility that we might see uh, a Keith Faz attempt to launch uh, a comeback attempt and return to the green benches. Do you know, every day in this job, I wake up and think British politics really needs the return of Keith Faz to Westminster. 
Moving on to the weekly instalment of the Culture Wars. Uh, this week, we revealed uh, that Sadiq Khan had used your taxpayer money uh, to bung £100,000 to a Black Lives Matter group behind one of last year's police station blockades. Uh, this was FOI data that we uh, got our hands on. Uh, last year, there was a, a skirmish when a 14-year-old boy who was carrying 13 bags of cannabis uh, was arrested and taken to a police station. The reaction of the, the community group called Forefront uh, was to have 30 to 40 protesters turn up to the police station uh, and, and have numerous scourge, uh, skirmishes which, which resulted in injuries. And there were two £50,000 uh, donations to this group over the last two years. So our tax money is now being given to an organisation set up to uh, reduce youth violence, which itself uh, is facilitating youth violence outside police stations. I don't want to depress anyone, but Sean Bailey is 50 to 1 to be, to be London Mayor. <laughs> that hasn't stopped just about every single Tory MP, whether they're in London or not, probably being forced to share his latest campaign video. You can invariably know that when a Sean Bailey video has been shared on Twitter, uh, someone from CCHQ has told some activist or MP to share that video. And if he's really in the shit, Boris mentions him at PMQs. That's how you know things are bad. <laughs> Turning to vaccines now, no one can deny the success of the vaccine rollout so far in this country, with getting on for 16 million people now vaccinated, uh, an incredible uh, quarter of all adults in this country. Um, yet, for some reason, a lot of people start to suspect that the government has taken their foot a little bit off the pedal. The date that Matt Hancock has set himself to uh, vaccinate the next JCVI pr uh, priority category groups, the, the, the next um, five to nine in those nine categories is at the end of April. And yet, looking at the trajectory that current vaccination speed is going at, we should achieve that by the end of March. So the government is giving itself an enormous amount of wiggle room to actually vaccinate more slowly than they already have. That's entirely the wrong way around. You would expect that as more vaccines come on stream, as we're expecting with a few more vaccines potentially being approved by the end of this month, as well as more domestic supply capacity being built up, we're going to more than double the amount of potential supply the country could have. So why is the government expecting that it could vaccinate more slowly? This is plainly incredibly unambitious. And I've spoken to a couple of MPs who sort of... Um, smile at you and say, ah, but that's because we want to um, under-promise and over-deliver. Well, I'm sorry, that might work during an election campaign, but this is about vaccinating people. It's far better to set yourself a far more stringent target, and if you fall slightly short of that, you'll have vaccinated more people. What matters here isn't the PR of the vaccination campaign, it's how many people we can vaccinate quickly so that we can get rid of these restrictions Finally, the idea that the government is setting itself a less ambitious target now is very, very worrying for those of us who want to see this lockdown ended as soon as possible. Of course, this stands in contrast to a very publicly buoyant and ambitious Joe Biden, who told a CNN town hall uh, this week uh, that the US is going to vaccinate 600 million times, or all 300 and 
uh, something a million citizens uh, by uh, September. Uh, now, this, that would be a really incredible ramping up and really could take the sheen uh, off the government, the UK government's uh, thus far success uh, if they are overtaken by America. Sounds like you're criticising the NHS there. I mean, it just goes to show free market medicine does produce results when it gets going. That being said, the more market-orientated healthcare systems in the EU, whether it's in Spain or France or Germany or Italy or Belgium or any of those countries that don't have the sort of monopolistic healthcare system, they can't be said to have done that well over the last few well, months. Well, hold on there, Tom, because it's not the, the health provider's fault. It's a centralised bureaucracy in Brussels that is in charge of procuring and distributing the, the drugs. So who knows how thick, effectively they'll be delivered by those market-orientated health services. If you can't get it from the centre, if you can't get the product from the centre, you can't blame it on the distribution. Now, while a consensus has formed in British politics that the UK vaccine scheme is going pretty well so far, uh, there's also a consensus across the board that the EU vaccine scheme isn't going very well at all. That's Almost a consensus, I should say, because the SNP appears to refuse to accept the reality of the situation. One of their senior MPs, Dr. Philia, Dr. Philippa Whitford, was on the BBC earlier this week and she was asked a question about the SNP's embarrassing condemnation of the UK government opting out of that EU procurement scheme and, uh, and given an opportunity to say, hands up, I was wrong. Uh, the UK government actually did a better job outside of the structures of the EU. And yet she refused to take up that opportunity to say she was wrong. Unlike the Labour Party, whose Shadow Europe Minister said, I was wrong for condemning the government for leaving the EU's uh, procurement scheme, the SNP seem to be digging further into the hole they dug for themselves. It's actually impressive to see how many SNP MSPs and MPs and even the party president uh, came out to condemn the UK government over leaving the EU scheme. Um, but they seem to be sticking to their guns, actually praising the solidarity of the EU scheme that has seen a pitiful percentage of Europeans vaccinated compared to Britain. Let's have a look at what she said. Uh, last year, last summer, I think I'm right in saying you were suggesting that actually we should be part of the EU's vaccine procurement programme and wait for the EU to get the vaccines. Um, if we'd been waiting for the EU to do it, we wouldn't be in nearly as a good a position as we are now. Well, obviously, yeah, I absolutely believe in, in solidarity across the EU. And, and quite interestingly, a poll in Germany recently showed that while people are annoyed that the EU have been slow, there is still support for the solidarity approach because their concern would have been that the big countries like France, Germany and the UK, if it had still been there, would have bought up all the vaccine, which is exactly what we've done, driven the price up. And therefore, other countries in Europe and beyond simply wouldn't get access mm. to the vaccine. But and very quickly, was, 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 but was that a mistake then for, for you to say that we, sh we should have waited for the EU uh, and to be part of their general procurement programme? Well, it wouldn't have stopped the UK also procuring for themselves. Member states were not forbidden that. But I do believe that when you have a challenge like this, there was a lot of talk last year about it being a global crisis and having a global response. 
but 14% of the world's population has bought up well over three quarters of the vaccine. And as one of your earlier speakers said, no one is safe until everyone is safe. So if we have countries in the world, whether it's Europe or you know, in the global south, who don't have access to the vaccine, who still have big case numbers, we will see more mutations. And eventually some of them will be resistant to the vaccine and that will undermine our own programme here. This story was made even more remarkable because whilst the SNP are digging in in their support for the EU vaccine scheme, we had Guy Verhofstadt, who I described as the patron saint of FBPers, saying that he has become Europe's most vocal critic over the fiasco of the vaccine rollout. Uh, and, and he said that there was issues with the negotiation and there was issues with the contract and uh, the priorities of, of who would get it. Uh, and, and so it's just, it's incredible. It's almost like, you know, the SNP uh, were boarded the Titanic saying it couldn't sink. And now they're in the ocean and still saying that the Titanic won't sink. I mean, it's, it's bunker mentality. To give Guy Verhofstadt credit where it's due, even though he is the most feral Eurofederalist who um, has been advocating for a, a new country called Europe to be created for decades and has always stuck true to that course, he's actually been able to, within the structures of believing his madcap project about creating uh, the United States of Europe, criticised the leadership of that project. He's criticised Ursula von der Leyen over her attitude towards China. He's actually quite an ally of Britain's when it comes to being um, a bit sceptical of the Chinese Communist Party. And also he's willing and able to point out where the EU has failed, especially over vaccines. Um, it, just comes to, it just goes to show that actually so much of the constitutional debate in terms of people disagreeing how countries should be structured is very separate often from how you think that countries should be run. And you can have agreements on some things and disagree on the constitution. Well, this, this story that we're talking about now had a very simple headline, jobs, jobs, jobs. And what I was saying here was, despite being a deficit hawk and uh, someone who worries about the national debt, this is not the budget that's coming up for Rishi to worry about any of those things. He's got three things to concentrate on. Jobs, jobs, jobs. He has to view every single policy proposal by one metric. Will this help create jobs? Nothing else matters. The evidence is that half a million firms are in danger of going bust. That's nine million jobs. There are two million people who have been furloughed for over six months. We are in a slightly phony war at the moment. But when things go back those, and furlough ends, we're going to see unemployment shoot up by a million people. So nothing else matters. Don't worry about deficit. Don't worry about debt. Just jobs, jobs, jobs. You can't tax your way to recovery, Rishi. And this story proved very popular. And it's true as well. A lot of people on the right who would normally be saying in a normal recession, uh, you're not supposed to support failing businesses, have been saying that it's different now because this is not a normal recession. This isn't bad businesses failing. This is businesses potentially failing because the government has literally prevented them from trading. That's not a problem with their business model. That's because the government has literally shut them down that they're now on their knees. So, of course, the government should come in and help those businesses through that it has literally told to close. Um, so while we're saying this now, and it seems the prudent thing to do now, 
deadline to help these businesses through. This is not the thing to do in a normal business cycle recession, uh, where, the, where the recession hasn't been brought about by a deliberate shutdown of all economic activity. Uh, in a normal recession where sort of businesses have um, got terrible models, um, they, those ones should obviously close to make room for the new ones that are coming up. But this is not a normal time. I worry he's going to be tempted by the idea of um, a windfall tax. He's going to argue that some businesses have done very well. We haven't been able to go out to restaurants, so let's tax, you know, Deliveroo and the supermarkets who've done very well. Let's tax the online shopping companies. I don't think that's the way forward. You're just going to have to take it on the chin and the national debt's going to wear it. And a usual departure for this podcast Tom has some personal news to tell us. Well, I'm afraid I'm only going to be appearing on a few more of these podcasts because in around six weeks' time, I will be leaving Guido Fawkes. Um, after three amazing years uh, at this incredible news operation, I was, I was actually thinking about it um, earlier today. When I joined, Boris Johnson was still... The Foreign Secretary. David Davis was still the Brexit Secretary and Chequers hadn't even been announced. Uh, and what a, what a three years it's been since and it's been the most incredible ride. But the news that um, you may or may not have heard by now is that I will be joining the new and exciting TV channel GB News as a political correspondent. For myself, I just want to say it is absolutely no surprise that you're going there. Um, everybody's asked me for about, since, well, since GB News was um, announced. So do you think Tom will go there? And I've known in my heart of hearts you uh, will do very well on that station. If you hadn't gone there, you'd have gone to Murdoch's new rival um, streaming, streaming operation. Other right-wing media platforms are available as they say at the BBC. Um, I, I'm just a bit worried that, uh, that, I mean, Bruno obviously watches this, and that's why he's pinched you, but I'm just a bit worried he doesn't know about all your habits and that he won't be expecting, he won't be expecting you to do early starts, for instance. Uh, I, think, I think in the same vein, I hope he's aware of your absolutely appalling uh, lunchtime routines because in the 20 or so months we've worked together I've seen you uh, eat raw pasta uh, uncooked hot dogs raw noodles um, I really hope that your new colleagues are going to be as able to cope with these sites as I wasn't Sometimes do you remember, the, do you remember the tomato ketchup sandwich <laughs> Do you remember the tomato ketchup sandwich? I still haven't got over that, you know. Anyway, I hope I hope they have a, a better expense account for better lunches and the best of luck <laughs> to you at GB News, Tom. Thank you so much. You have been rehearsing for this since you were twelve doing those YouTube videos, haven't you? I mean, if, if, any of those. <laughs> if, if any of those twelve YouTube videos from when you were twelve should get out. That would be unfortunate. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't announce it by saying after three wonderful years we leave uh, Guido in very much better <laughs> state than much when better we came state. here. <laughs> that might be presumptuous. <laughs> this does, of course, open up another opportunity for somebody. So uh, do send in your... Um, I would say send in your CVs, but you're going to have to do a screen test, a... Uh, writing test, 
it's going to be very testy to take Tom's place. Good luck. Well, that's it for this week. Remember, if you're new to the podcast, you can subscribe to us on YouTube and hit that little notification bell to get alerted every Friday when we bring out new episodes. We're also available on all good podcasting platforms, so check out Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. If you're just listening on audio, check out the video edition on YouTube and subscribe. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. (laughs) 